This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night, and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment, and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolav.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. Tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. Welcome to the mom room. I did my first hot yoga class this morning in over five years, and I feel like a new human. You know when you haven't worked out in so long, and then you go and work out, and you're just like, this is my life now. I am a person that does yoga. That's just my identity right now. And today was a not easy class. Like it's not easy, but it's a flow class. So it's a little bit slower. And then tomorrow in the time slot that I wanted is a power class. And so I asked the girl, I'm like, what's the difference between what we did today versus tomorrow for the power class? And she was like, oh, it's just a lot quicker. So you're doing a lot more stuff within the hour. And I was like, oh, good, because I didn't struggle at all for this class. So I would like something harder tomorrow. Honestly, the best part of hot yoga is at the very end when you're in Savasana, Shavasana, Savasana, and they come by and put the ice cold face cloth on your forehead. It's like a cold plunge, but just for your forehead. It's so amazing. I looked at the temperature of the room. I could see the little like thermometer. It was a digital thermometer. It was 41 degrees. <sighs> Anyways, this is my life now. I'm a person that goes to hot yoga and I'm also going to get a gym membership and start lifting weights because I'm going to be 40 in a year and a half and I need muscle on my body, specifically my buttocks my freaking glutes, my hips, my lower back, my core. I'm not trying to be a frail old lady here. Like I need to get in shape. And if that means work stuff takes a hit, then that's okay. Like I need to adjust my schedule and just not do as much as I'm used to doing because I need to take care of myself. So that's that on that. Anywho, today's episode is not about hot yoga. It is about something that a lot of people talk about online or you see content about this topic online. And maybe if you're like me, you don't necessarily fully understand what it means or how it happens. So I am talking about intergenerational trauma. 
trauma and honestly just trauma in general. That's where we started this conversation. I feel like trauma is an overused word nowadays. So I was very excited to talk to Dr. Marielle Bouquet. She is an expert in all things trauma and specifically intergenerational trauma. She is a clinical psychologist and she also has a new book out called Breaking the Cycle. So if you love this conversation, you want to learn more about what we're talking about, then please go and get Breaking the Cycle. I had so many questions for her because I am genuinely interested in this topic and I don't know much about it. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Marielle Bouquet to the Mom Room podcast. So to start, I thought I would ask you to tell us a little bit about your background and then also how you ended up studying the area of trauma. Because I know I did my PhD and it was very focused on eating disorders. And so I think when people hear like, oh, you have a PhD in psychology, they think it's like, you know, absolutely everything there is to know about psychology, but it's very niche once you're in grad school. So how did you end up in that area? Yeah, I'm so glad. You know, this is like probably the first time that I've ever been asked that very question. Oh, wow. I'm always so curious. Yeah. <laughs> but for a lot of us, like there is this concept called me-search, right? Where some of us do research and do work in areas that feel pertinent to our lived experiences. And that definitely was the case when it came to trauma specifically, but intergenerational trauma as a sub-niche of, of trauma. And I actually... You know, I, this isn't my first career. I started volunteering when I was in my previous career and I was an advertising executive. I, I say I was like living my madman life in, in New York. Oh, I love that. <laughs> we have for a few years and and beyond that time, well, within within the time that I was actually still doing that work, I wanted to volunteer because the work wasn't very fulfilling. It was just very, you know, tied to capitalism and, and just nothing that felt good to the soul. Eventually, I found myself into volunteering more in the mental health area, and that led me down the path of psychology and then igniting this incredible, incredible career that I love so much. But once I got into the work, the stories of my clients, they started sounding the same. It was like different people, different sessions, different histories, but a through line. Like so many people had this generational tie of pain that kept transpiring from person to person in their families. And we weren't really calling that out because we don't have a diagnostic label for intergenerational trauma in our diagnostic manual. We don't have that language floating through clinical team meetings. And so... A lot of this work really grew out of frustration of really not seeing us call out what was the elephant in the room, but also seeing that, oh, that's also happening in my family. Like my mother was also, you know, someone that experienced a lot of profound guilt and she experienced, you know, bouts of where I saw her feeling really anxious. Like she looked very anxious to me, but I just never had the language to really explain that. And wow, her mother also had like some element of like, you know, feeling a lot of emotional discomfort in her own lifetime and, and suffering a lot of traumas. Why is this not something that I know about my history? And how is this not something that I'm approaching even in my own work as a therapy client? 
So all of that just like really started like bubbling up to the surface. And eventually I was like, we need a, we need a guidebook. We need something that we can lean on and say, like, I have at least some sort of a roadmap for how I can break cycles of generational trauma in my life and that I can like flip through these pages and actually see what I need to do. And so that's why I wrote Break the Cycle and that's why I do, do this work. Like, was your research in school based around these topics or was it something that you became interested in after the fact? It was after the fact. I actually started off with like health disparities research and trying to understand the social determinants of health. But it transitions into that because simultaneously, as you know, like we train as clinicians through our programs. And so when I was, I had these two, three hats really, like I was part professor, part research associate and part clinician as I was doing my training. And so like when I was in my clinician role and in that frame of mind, I kept hearing the same stuff that didn't tie into what I was seeing in my research or what I was seeing, you know, in even in the, the, what I was teaching to the next generation of, of therapists, like it just wasn't connecting. So can we break down what, because I feel like recently, especially online on social media, the word trauma is all of a sudden like everybody's using it for multiple things. But if we look at it from, you know, like a psychology perspective, what actually is a trauma and how does someone even know if they have experienced trauma? Because I'm assuming a lot of people go through really difficult things, but they minimize their experience. And so they're like, that would be considered trauma? Like, is it surprising to people? Yeah, you know, it, it's still surprising to some folks because we're just coming into popularizing this language and then taking the added step of applying trauma-based language to our lives so that we can get an understanding of how much we've been wounded by certain experiences or certain people or certain systems. However, trauma itself is considered to be not the event itself or series of events that transpired in your life, but your the ways in which you then became mentally and physically rewired as a result of those experiences. So it's the coping mechanisms that you adopted in a very subconscious way in order to help get you through the moment, through that emotional upheaval that came from the event that felt traumatic. And then the ways that you continue to cope thereafter, even after the event had already passed. Let's say the event was a car accident. So can there be two people who experience the exact same car accident in the same way, and one, they would both be considered a trauma, but one, like, processes it and, like, copes in a different way, and so it doesn't have the same effects on them as it would somebody else? Like, is it dependent upon the individual? It's dependent upon a couple of things. So the individual is a part of that, but the individual is a part of that in regards to how much internal capacity they have to actually get through the circumstance. And that's not saying that there's a personal failure on behalf of that person, but more so like 
you know, we all have a certain amount of resources that we have at any given time to get us through specific experiences. And if our resources are tapped out, let's say that, you know, person number one is a person that, let's say, is a woman, is a person of color, is someone that is a mom of four, and let's say that they're recently divorced. Let's say that, you know, they didn't get the promotion that they desired at work. And so we have all of those psychological factors and environmental factors all circulating through the same person, really surmounting in an enormous amount of responsibilities and also some stressors. And then you have, you know, let's say, I, I, I hate to get gendered about it, but let, let's say that is, it's a man, right? Like, let's say that it's a white we man. Have, let's say we have a white man. <laughs> yeah. And let's say that we, you know, that this person, you know, has, is, is a C-suite executive. They, you know, come from a position, a position of wealth within their family unit and, and don't really have any financial constraints. And let's say that the car accident happened to these same individuals, one would have had environmental stressors and also duties and responsibilities that mentally tax them out prior to the event happening and then would have contributed to them having less to actually help them with getting through the moment in a way so as to not develop trauma symptoms. Whereas the other, right, given that they already had, you know, a lot of freedom and space and mental space to actually cope with the event, they would have let's say, not likely develop those, those trauma symptoms. So yes, it, the experience can be different for different individuals, and it is both internal and external factors that contribute to our capacities to cope through any circumstances that we go through. This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. You guys know I have been very intentional with what we've been eating lately. I'm looking at protein, I'm looking at sugar content, and avoiding things like artificial ingredients or colorings. Milo used to always want pancakes or waffles in the mornings, and now he is getting into cereal, and I'm so excited because Magic Spoon is the perfect option. Their variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. They have zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four to five grams of carbs per serving. They're made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and I'm just so happy that he's getting a good amount of protein before he goes off to school. And it's a great snack for me and my husband too, because 13 to 14 grams of protein in the cereal, now you add a high protein milk, you're set. That is such a high protein snack or meal. I should also mention that it is gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So go to magicspoon.com slash momroom to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code momroom at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. So try a delicious bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash momroom and use the code momroom to save $5. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. It is 2024. As busy parents, it's hard to completely overhaul our lives, but what we can do is make small changes that will make our lives easier. 
And that is where Little Spoon comes in. Their goal is to make keeping your kid healthy feel like the easiest part of your day so that you can cut through all the drama of mealtime. Little Spoon offers baby blends, biteables, and plates. So baby blends is fresh, organic baby food. They have single ingredients, but also multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. Biteables make the transition to finger foods easy because they are cut perfectly to size, which promotes self-feeding. And of course, all the biteables are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. And then there are plates for your toddlers and your bigger kids. They are meals that are free of all the bad stuff. They taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. They have things like hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous things like pot stickers, gnocchi, and more. Little Spoon also has smoothies and build-it-yourself lunches. Did I mention it all comes right to your door? It is super flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. You can pick up the menu and change up what you order every single time. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You and your kids will love it. It's a huge win-win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. This is a, a little bit of an off-topic question, but I am curious if you work with a lot of people who have experienced trauma with regard to childbirth or, you know, postpartum things like, is that a common thing that you see? Yes, and and it's so variable because postpartum can be you know, I've worked with individuals that have had postpartum experiences around fetal demise and postpartum experiences around their child being healthy, but they themselves experiencing postpartum anxiety or postpartum psychosis, right? Postpartum depression, which I think is most more common in the language in society that we use it more often. But there are other postpartum, you know, experiences that that people that give birth tend to have. And also, you know, with mothers that have had their children in NICUs for a number of months or, you know, mothers who have birthed children who then were presumed healthy, but then, you know, presented with some complications or that there's been a fracturing in the relationship with their partner postpartum, right? Like there's just so many different experiences that a person can have after they give birth and even the the bodily changes, the hormonal changes, the, the ways that their minds and bodies are like really kind of feeling very foreign. And so all of that is a part of what is necessary to work through from even from a trauma lens because a person is like really thrown into something that feels so unfamiliar, especially if they're first time giving birth. And that unfamiliarity can really catapult a person into the depths of despair in a way that they weren't really anticipating during what one would presume would be a really joyous moment in a person's life. Yeah, it's like the conflicting, you know, which I think is why a lot of women might not necessarily seek help or talk about it because society's like perception is this is the happiest moment of your life. Like you should be you know, hashtag blessed, like all the things. And then a lot of people struggle and they don't feel like they can voice it. So as a psychologist that deals with trauma, would you recommend, because I always think about people going through traumatic experiences, let's say a car accident or a childbirth thing. 
Is it recommended that they get help as soon as possible, like seek the help of a psychologist or because in my mind, I always I have heard just because of what I do on this podcast, so many stories of traumatic childbirth experiences or like you were saying, NICU, like babies in the NICU. And it blows my mind that, like, I'm in Canada, and but I'm sure it's similar in the U.S. Like, there's no supports put in place. It's just, like, very medical, and it's like, you know, this happened. Like, my friend had her twins in separate hospitals in NICUs, and she was going back and forth, like, the first month of their life trying to pump and give them breast milk, and, like, it was a whole thing. And I was like, did anybody reach out to you and like offer help or like resources? And she was like, no, they like when they took the one son to the other hospital, they were basically just like, oh, you're not going to be able to go see him because it was COVID at that time, like the pandemic. And they were like, so just relax and go have lunch. And she was like, you know what I mean? I'm shocked that there's no because these trauma experiences can have such a lasting effect on us. There's no, like, resources put into trying to help people who have just experienced something. Yeah, and that's a part of what I've written about in reference to the ways in which the medical model has been structured to fragment us, like really treat one aspect of the person without attending to the ways in which you know, they're suffering in other ways. And that's very, very much, you know, the case when it comes to the mind-body divide in the medical model and the ways in which we haven't had a healthcare system that accounts for the ways in which stress gets deposited into the body and the ways in which it creates a circular, cyclical experience of mind-body distress. As a result, we don't have systems in place in many of the really kind of like, it's not, it's all the way from that first OB visit all the way down to, you know, when you already have like someone in pediatrics, a child in pediatrics, like there aren't systems put in place that are trauma-informed, that have trauma response, and that are proactive in helping the families to not absolve trauma. I actually found it really interesting when my nephew was in the NICU and I was already, at that point in time, I was a graduate student, but I was far along in my degree, in my process of obtaining my doctorate and really very keenly attuned to the ways in which they engaged with the families from a from the perspective of uh, mental health. And it it felt so lacking and missing, even though the nurses were so kind, you know, and catering and loving, but the nurturance that was there was also not trauma-informed or trauma-responsive. And in a place like a NICU where there's so much trauma, so much trauma, I mean, like, you know, I won't get into the details of what how trauma can look in a NICU. I'm sure that people are familiar, but it's pervasive. And and the fact that there isn't any kind of training around emotional trauma for the individuals that serve the families, is it's a disservice that we do to our society. Yeah, I'm hoping it changes eventually. But like, I think conversations like this are a great start. But yeah, I'm always like, I want it to change tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, me too. But it and, takes you know, time. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful yeah. that hopefully in our lifetime, we may be able to see it. Okay, let's switch gears to intergenerational trauma. And 
again, I hear a lot about this on social media, but I don't know that people necessarily truly understand what that is. So can you describe what that is, how it happens, and maybe people listening, maybe they're wondering like, oh, is that something that we've experienced in our family? Like, how would you know? Mm -hmm. So intergenerational trauma is the only category of trauma that is actually handed down from parent to child and down the family line. And it happens at the intersection of two modes of transmission. One, which is your biology, which is your genetics and your genetic makeup, really your genetic expressions, and how those get translated forward in utero and then thereafter. And just to explain that a little bit more, the ways that that happens is that, in essence, like we are developing in the womb. And as we're, you know, actually really at the point of conception, we're already adopting any of the expressions of stress or trauma that were present in the genetic encoding of our parents. And so all of that is happening really at the conception stage and then forming even more within the in utero environment. And then the other intersection is, you know, or the other point of the intersection is our psychology, which is everything that happens thereafter. It's really, you know, when we're further along in the in utero process and we're in a belly where, you know, our mother is experiencing a lot of profound stress in her life and those stress hormones are flooding through her bloodstream and then filtering onto us. It's when we're born and we're born perhaps into an environment where there's maybe a bit more relational chaos than our little tender minds and bodies can contain and that makes us feel unsettled. And then it's fast forward into life when we enter the school system and maybe there's bullying or if there's a divorce in our family or if one parent, you know, passes away or if there is a relocation to a place that feels really foreign and doesn't feel like holding and, and, and helpful or is a place where you experience oppression and perhaps you're in a toxic relationship later on in life. And so it's all of those things that then start accumulating in our minds and bodies as added stressors when eventually, as we mentioned before, you know, our internal resources can only carry but so much. And eventually we, we wear down and our internal capacities to actually cope through the circumstances presented to us, they get tapped out and in comes the newest inheritor of trauma in the family, which is us now keeping the cycle of generational trauma. When do people say, okay, I think I want to go see Dr. Bouquet? Like, when does that happen? And to determine whether someone is experiencing intergenerational trauma, is it unpacking their childhood? Is that where a lot of the work is done? It actually goes even beyond that because it's intergenerational. We start working on building out a very strategic and comprehensive family tree where we can identify a different trauma responses that are reflected in the family tree. So there is this, this concept that along the way in my work, I started mulling over and I even placed it in the book and I reflect on this concept with my clients, which is the concept of an intergenerational inner child, which is the inner child that did not get nurtured and cared for and reconciled within our parents eventually becomes the inner child 
within us. When a, when a parent is expressing what we now in society or just kind of in general lingo tend to call like emotional instabilities or emotional immaturity, meaning that they don't have the tools and skills to be able to work through their own emotions and they, you know, engage in, you know, rage fits or perpetually make their children feel guilty for things, parentify their children, right? Like all of those things. A lot of that, it's not to be excused, right? But it is in part reflective of their own wounding. And what happens when they're not aware of their wounding and then working through those wounds, should they have the access to do so? They risk passing on wounds to their own children. And now their children are developing inner child wounds in themselves that are now not getting resolved and absolved because the cycle is continuing. And so that's usually, you know, the places where we go, where we we go a generation beyond their own, maybe two if we have the data and we start mapping the origins and identifying, you know, where was the wounding? What happened? Who was hurt? How did that hurt then perpetuate hurt within you? And also how did your environment also contribute to the perpetuation of trauma in ways that didn't allow you to feel safe and nurtured. Is the goal of the therapy or like the way you work through it to kind of help them make sense of their experiences and like what has happened historically throughout like the generations? Like, is that like where you start and then you start working on maybe like the coping mechanisms or, you know, changing behaviors? Like what's kind of like the, I'm thinking about like how therapy has different, you know, like the you're flow? working. Th- yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what's, <laughs> what's the, the therapy like trajectory, like the work through? Yeah. You know, I actually wrote my book to, in essence, emulate the ways that I go through the process with folks. I love And it's that. written in 12 chapters. Thank you. I, I did that very intentionally so that people wouldn't necessarily like jump straight to what's hurting, which is typically what people want to do. And I mean, like think about like the usual first session, right? A person comes in and it's like, word vomit, blah, you know, and like just really trying to get it all out because they've been holding on to these things for so long. And while that can be cathartic, it can also be re-traumatizing and it can also leave a person with an emotional hangover. And it's really critical for me as a clinician that also works in a very mind-body way and with somatics, which is the, you know, the body aspect of psychotherapy, that I am attuned to the ways that a person is experiencing their own trauma history in their bodies. So I don't actually go straight to what's hurting. We do a lot of digging work, but we, we do that in the middle of the work that we do. Initially, the work has to look like grounding and settling the nervous system continuously before we even get into the digging work that's going to unravel the person emotionally, but we would we would have already have had the actual skills and tools for them to reground once they get into the digging work. And then the third part of that is a method of integration. And this, you know, there there are some models of of trauma, especially very early on models of trauma that do have this like phasic, like phase one, phase two, phase three 
way of orienting around the work, which is very intentional in order to make sure that we are regulating, co-regulating and regrounding the client so that they can feel like the work that they're doing is tolerable and they don't feel the need to escape their own bodies and minds and dissociate because they're going through very traumatic histories. Like, did you create that model of treatment? Yeah, That's incredible. Thank you. That's incredible. (laughs) And you said the book follows that kind of path. So who would benefit from reading Break the Cycle? I intentionally wrote Break the Cycle for cycle breakers that are hoping to do the work and just don't have the model to be able to do the work themselves. So it is mostly intended for cycle breakers, but I made sure to add the added intention and structure for anybody who's a healer or a clinician who is also hoping to integrate intergenerational healing work into their work with clients so that they can see the roadmap. And there's so much there that I present as far as like what we in therapy call like psychoeducation. So I help us understand, well, what is, let's really dig into epigenetics. Like let's get into the meat of this, like what is it exactly, right? What is the nervous system and ways in which the nervous system then internalizes trauma and how do we then start excavating the trauma from our nervous system and reorienting our nervous system back to safety? So it's like all of those things are also present there for clinicians to extract and apply into their work should they be willing to do any generational healing work with folks. Do you teach at all? I do. I teach. I've actually taken a a hiatus from teaching. I teach at Columbia University in the counseling psychology department. And because I was writing a book and, you know, and it's it's lengthy and it's a lot of work, uh, I couldn't simultaneously also attend to my teaching duties, but I'm hoping to go back once the book launches. Oh, I love that. I See, I thought I would be a professor. I'm like, oh yeah, like I finished my PhD a few days before quarantine started. And I was like, I'm in the Toronto area. So I'm like, oh yeah, I'm probably going to be a professor. And then during quarantine, I started this podcast and started doing social media. And so now that's what I do. But, you know, maybe one day, maybe one day I'll be a professor. (laughs) I really miss it. It's, It's so rewarding to be in a space where, you know, therapists that are just coming into this work are like soaking up the knowledge. And what I find to be like really rewarding about getting into the work with some of the the incoming clinicians is the fact that many of them, if not all of us, because I'm sure that you know this, are not trained around trauma. We actually don't have a trauma course for most programs don't. Most the APA doesn't really our, our you know governing association doesn't require any kind of like specific trauma training. So when we actually get into the crux of trauma, there's a lot of lively conversations that happen in those spaces. And it's so rewarding to see and, and to hear even like how they apply it to their own work with the clients that they're seeing at that very moment. And I really do miss that. Like I miss the students so much. And I know that I have to find my way back there, even with the busy. So eventually we'll see. <laughs> it's interesting because... A lot of my work was, are you familiar with attachment theory? A lot of my work was in that area, but with patients that were seeking treatment for an eating disorder for adults. And we would give them the adult attachment interview, which is like this big, long, structured interview, and then you code it. And 
you know, find out their attachment style and so on and so forth. But one of the most, like, the common thing that most people had was childhood trauma. But like you were saying, it's like that was so common, but there was no like course about trauma or, you know, like the therapy looked at all kinds of different things. Like there was different, you know, CBT or like group psychotherapy, whatever. But yeah, the common thing was often childhood trauma for people who had like an unhealthy attachment style, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I think, you know, a lot of these diagnostic labels that we have that we utilize in in the settings that we're trained in or the settings that we work in as clinicians, I tend to see them as symptoms, not the actual condition itself. And when we start digging, and I know that many people, especially if people are listening and they're clinicians themselves, they're probably going to shake their heads like, yeah, many of us, when we do the digging work and we dig deep enough, we find some element of trauma that was present and some fracturing that happened very early on in a person's life. So that doesn't surprise me at all because I, I've, I've seen it so often that at this point I'm like, you know, it, trauma just happens to be the root of a lot of things. And one of the things that makes me the happiest about living in this generation is the fact that there is a little bit more of an openness to the conversation around trauma. And I feel like if we can just, like myself, if I can just almost like kind of crack that open just a bit more so that we can have very honest and concrete conversations with each other about the ways that we hurt each other and the ways that that perpetuates wounds that last a very long time and the ways that we can heal from it, I think that there's something that we can do in this generation to create a shift around how we trauma, traumatize and re-traumatize our fellow humans, right? And so I'm hopeful. I, I try to remain hopeful. And I also see the zeitgeist moving in the direction of opening up that conversation. So I'm, I'm hoping that I can, you know, in whatever ways my one person can maximize that, but also like it takes, it takes a global community to do so. You said that you work also with like not just mind but also body work. So can you explain a little bit about how trauma shows up in our bodies physically? Definitely. You know, one of the most pertinent ways and perhaps the most specific way in which trauma shows up in the body is through our nervous system. And we have to think about the way the nervous system works in order to understand that because the nervous system is actually proportioned into three parts. You know, one is our parasympathetic symptom, uh, system, which is basically what goes on alert when we perceive that there's a threat in our environment. And so all of a sudden we're like, you know, our pupils are dilated. We're preparing for the possibility that this threat may actually cause us to, you know, lose our lives or just threaten our personhood in some way or another, right? We start sweating, our stomach starts turning, right? Like there's a lot of like physiological responses that are all tied to our nervous system that are in essence preparing us for the fight. When that happens for a long period of time, we actually go into what we call like this dorsal vagal shutdown mode. And when we're in shutdown mode, that's when we start experiencing dissociation, emotional stuntedness or shutting down or like dis disconnecting from reality. But in between those two areas, we have what we call, and forgive me, the, the 
part that I meant to mention earlier was the sympathetic nervous system. But in between those two areas, we have the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the, the part of our nervous system that helps us to regulate and rest. And that part of our nervous system helps us to move from that place of, oh my goodness, there's a threat coming, to, okay, there's safety, I'm okay, I can rest now. If we don't get the rest, then we go into our dorsal vagal response and we shut down and we kind of remain there for long periods of time. Trauma tends to keep us either in that sympathetic state as a default, meaning that we're always perceiving that a threat is present and we're always on this hyper alert and believing that something bad is going to happen. Or it pushes us into that dorsal vagal response, which is, I can't even deal with the realities of life right now, and you shut down emotionally. In order to mobilize a person out of a trauma state or mobilize them out of defaulting to either that sympathetic or dorsal vagal response, we have to initiate intentionally and consciously that parasympathetic process, which means that we have to then help a person to experience rest and restoration on an ongoing basis and help them to absorb that as more of the default so that trauma isn't, you know, what, what is driving the ways that their body is, is being experienced. So it's important, to, you know, that we bring in that element of the nervous system because in part trauma is largely situated in how our nervous system is responding to our environments. When you work with clients, do you, because obviously people think of psychologists and they think of talk therapy, do you do other stuff that is more targeted towards the nervous system? I do. I actually, I was incredibly fortunate. I, I tell you, like, sometimes I feel like the universe just functions to like put you in the right place. <laughs> but I was really fortunate to actually get into this three-year fellowship while I was still in my doctoral studies, and that fellowship was in collaboration with the United States Health Services Administration and Columbia University Medical Center. And the two collaborated to create this unique experience of placing a graduate student in training to actually understand what we then called integrated mental health, which now we call like holistic mental health or holistic psychology. And the purpose of the, the role was for me to then co-create with some of my supervisors and directors this protocol for how I would then be in all of the Columbia University like smaller clinics, the OBGYN clinic, the neurology clinic, and I would go for a few hours a week and actually provide therapy that would also integrate holistic methods like meditation, like sound bath meditation, like stretching like yoga and like really introduce body-based experiences and practices into the work itself and then also collaborate and work with the physicians and the nurses and the social workers and the clinical staff that didn't fit into those categories and also the office staff to orient them around not only like trauma factors but also how we could work together in unison to understand the whole human and treat the whole human rather than treat them in parts. I remember going to this, it was like this mom retreat thing. It was like this camp thing in the Toronto area. And I have no experience with 
you know, the, the kind of like holistic things that you were just talking about. And I joined this class and it was like a sound bath thing. And I'm like, oh, sure. Like, why not? Like, so they had us like laying down and like they came around the class and they were doing like the sound bowls and they would like touch your feet or like touch certain parts of you. And then she like pointed out after the fact, she was like going around to different people just saying like what she like felt like around us. And she was said something to me about like, you need to learn, like you need to like relax. You need, like, I forget how she worded it, but I just like burst into tears. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, this is wild. Like, just, it blew my mind. And I remember thinking she has a clinic somewhere in Toronto. And I was like, I'm a little bit afraid to go back <laughs> to see her. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, it was extremely powerful. And it wasn't even, you know, what I'm assuming it is in the actual clinic. Because we were just like out at a camp, like doing this thing outside. But like, you know, someone that comes from therapy-oriented background to be exposed to that. And it had me in tears after like five minutes. It was powerful. So that's really nice that you incorporate both because I think someone like me for sure, like I could sit in a therapy room and I'll just like intellectualize everything. I'm like a chatty person. I'm like personable. You know what I mean? Yeah. But <laughs> make me be quiet and like reflect and I'll be like, oh. <laughs> so I love that. I found it to be really helpful for folks. And, you know, I, I once heard somatic work is 50-50 attunement for yourself and attunement for the client. And what it does is that it allows you to be so incredibly present in your own body and in your own state of mind that you have the capacity to offer greater presence to the person that's in front of you that you're helping to heal. And I feel like it really does do that. You know, like you got to think about even a sound bath, the practitioner, sound, sound baths are, you know, they create micro frequencies and micro vibrations that in essence, like shake the body back into balance. So the practitioner is also experiencing those sound waves and sound mechanisms while they're providing the sound bath to their client. So it, there is a co-regulation that's happening in that space. It's really beautiful. So it's it, there's a lot that happens in in you know when we work from the perspective of mind body. And like you said, how often nowadays are people just like paying attention to what's going on in their body? Like how many people even have a moment to sit and reflect on certain things or you know what I mean nowadays everyone is just like go 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 we're distracted like you you have a moment to sit down like in the doctor's waiting room you're like on your phone you know like you're never just like hmm yeah <laughs> yeah yeah we uh, we learned through the pandemic that when we're left alone with our thoughts or we are forced back into environments that we tend to avoid by overworking that there are wounds that are there that we've been avoiding. And now that we've transitioned from the pandemic, I think a lot of us were like, I never want to go back there. 
<laughs> that felt awful. I had to confront my deepest, or I, or at least I got a taste of what that that is, and the the darkness that is within the shadows that I really need to unearth and like shed light to. I don't want to go there. Let me get back on my phone. <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh my gosh. So, listeners of this podcast are mostly moms, obviously, with younger children. And so with regard to intergenerational trauma, I wanted you to kind of make the case for, because maybe some parents are listening and they're like, you know what, I had a rough upbringing. Like, I didn't like the way my parents treated me as a child, but they're repeating the same patterns with their children or they see themselves doing some things that they don't like, like yelling or whatever it might be. So is it ever too late to kind of work on this stuff and make changes? Never. Okay. My oldest client was 84 years old. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) It was so endearing to work with this person. It is never late. Actually, mothers that are young mothers in, in meaning that they they're young in their in their process of mothering, if they have like babies, toddlers, you know, younger children. They are uniquely positioned to actually make an enormous difference in their child's life, regardless of what has happened prior to this moment right now. I always tell cycle breakers, like, every day presents you with an opportunity to break the cycle. All you have to do is take it. All you have to do is decide, today I'm going to decide to do things differently and create the shift. Now, it doesn't come that easy, right? Because, again, we're talking about a nervous system that has been pre-programmed to stress or to be reactive to stress in ways that sometimes make us feel out of control or outside of ourselves or like we just don't have, you know, the capacity to control the next thing that's going to come out of our mouths that can be hurtful to our children. So it's going to be really critical for any parent that is thinking about how do I not pass on pain to my child to first focus on themselves. There's this concept that I focus on in my work that I call parenting back, parenting forward. And what it is, is a process of reparenting yourself while also parenting the next generation, meaning your children, parenting them differently than how you grew up. And it's, in essence, I know it's double the work, right? But it it can be doubly rewarding as well because what is happening in that moment is that you're not only helping yourself to feel more settled, more safe, more regulated, and for those inner child wounds that exist within you to become absolved, you're also helping your child to develop a greater sense of themselves in a way that is healthy. And so there is, you're, you're actually bearing witness to the two points of healing, which is beautiful. And there, there are ways that parents can actually engage in mindfulness practices or, you know, meditations that are child-centered or like, you know, fun yoga practices or even dance parties. There's so many ways that parents can begin that process of co-regulating with their children that can actually break the cycle each and every day and can really make an impact. That's nice to hear. I'm sure everyone's going to love that response. So your book is called Break the Cycle. Can you tell people where they can find it? And then also if they want to learn more about you, if you have a website or your account on social media, which I follow. So (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate you. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm equally a fan. And I have the book is actually, you know, it's through Penguin Random House. So 
Luckily, you know, it'll be everywhere, everywhere. books are sold. My website is drmariellebouquet.com. And on the website and even on the book site, I will have a parent's guide and also a book guide that people can actually engage with. And they'll have journal prompts and an intergenerational family tree that they can, you know, reflect upon on there. And there'll be other tools that they can use in helping to establish a more regulated self and even some tools that, you know, parents can use with their children also if they want to do co-regulating with their little ones. Oh, I love that. And your (laughs) Instagram is Dr. Marielle Bouquet? Yes, it is. So it's Dr. Marielle Bouquet. But if you type Dr. Marielle Bouquet, I come up. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was lovely. I'm so happy. Guys, if you're listening, we had to reschedule this like 25 times because (laughs) (laughs) I was sick, Milo was sick, she had to reschedule. So we finally did it. So yay. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad. (laughs) Thank you for having me. This has been amazing. Thank you.